Hey, good morning, Gretna family. This is Pastor Rob. It's so great to see you today. We are going to start out today's message with a knock-knock joke. I know that's weird because clearly I'm talking to a camera, <laughs> but, but I'm going to do it anyways. Ready? Knock-knock. Jay. Jay who? Yes, that is the king that we are going to talk about today in our second week of our series, Faith During faithlessness. And yes, I know your eyes are rolling and you're you're just going, are you serious? That's the stupidest beginning you've ever had to a sermon. I'm going to say, then you should feel very sorry for those that I'm going to speak to and say this joke again to live on Sunday morning because the groans will be out of control, I'm sure. But it is the king that we're going to talk about this week. He is the 10th king of Israel and he's one of the, the people that we're looking at in this series in the book of Second Kings that have an opportunity in a time when the community around them is moving away from God actively to choose whether or not to follow him or to go with the masses and to walk away from him. And that is faith, having faith during faithlessness. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. In our text today, one of the prophets we looked at last week, Elisha, the, the protege of the prophet Elijah, will name Jehu king, king of Israel, the northern kingdoms, if you remember, and that will carry out or fulfill a promise, a directive given first to Elijah many years before. There's only one problem. Well, there's probably many problems, but there's one big problem. There's already a king on the throne. Can you see how that would be a conflict? And the truth is, it's going to create some issues. Um, but first, let's take a look at, or remember a little bit at least, the, the story of King Ahab. Ahab is the primary um, antagonist in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. He is the source of much of the evil that is being done within the body of of God's people, especially in the northern kingdom of Israel. And their their relationship is tenuous, right? It, it's, and it, and frankly, Ahab would be happy if both Elijah and Elisha are dead. We recognized that, that Ahab was amongst uh, the most despicable rulers of the northern kingdom. And if you remember correctly, the northern kingdom had a total of about 20 kings during its history, and all of them were bad, and he's among the worst. First Kings 16 actually says it this way. It says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he proceeded to serve Baal and bow down and worship to him. As a side note, wherever you see Jeroboam, that's another king in Israel and a bad king, wherever you see him named, it's always followed with Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And I don't know what Nebat did to deserve to end up constantly attached to his kid's name for all eternity, but... I kind of feel sorry for him sometimes because his son did some horribly evil things. We also know that he married, Je King Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel is the daughter of, it says here, Ethbal. Ethbal simply means this, with Baal. 
the biblical archaeological society describes Baal as a Phoenician god, and a Phoenician god that was the god of the storm, which totally makes sense because his home, because if you remember back in the Old Testament times, gods were thought to be in certain places and only in certain places. So the notion of a, a, a god that encompasses the entirety of a, of a nation and, and a world and a universe is mind-boggling to them something I think we kind of take for granted today. But he was the god of the area called Sidon. Sidon was a Mediterranean seaport in modern-day Lebanon, and it, his ancestors, were their ancestors were the Canaanites. And so they worshipped Baal, and this king, Ethbal, was clearly, he had hitched his wagon completely to Baal. Our subject today isn't so much King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who did their damage, as we discussed a little bit last week. And if you want to read more about that, I encourage you to read the books of First and Second Kings. Just crazy how many times the people of God chose to walk away from him. But today's story was really about Ahab's children and his grandchildren, because unfortunately, the apples didn't far, far, fall far from the tree. The king in question today, the one who's in charge of Israel that is about to be removed in favor of Jehu, because that's what God has decided needs to happen, is King Jehoram, or, or also known as Joram, depending on your translation, but it's still the same person. He's the king of Israel, and he's introduced in 2 Kings chapter 3. Jehoram's reign is where we pick up the story of Jehu, and the fact that he will be charged with ending the family line of Ahab. So if you follow along with me, we're in 2 Kings chapter 9. We're going to go through verses 1 through 14 today, but we're going to, or 13 today, but we're going to do it in chunks. So let's look at first 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to read out of the CSB. It says this, the prophet Elisha called one of the sons of the prophets and said, tuck your mantle under your belt, take this flask of oil with you and go to Ramath Gilead. When you get there, Look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go in, get away from his colleagues, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask of oil, pour it over his head, and say, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Open the door and escape. Don't wait. If only it were that simple, right, to be put in charge. <laughs> Some guy walks in, a prophet of God walks in and says, Guess what? You're in charge now. I'm anointing you with oil. Giddy up. Let's go. Right. Um, it's no wonder that Elisha tells this this young prophet when he says the sons of a prophet. That's, that's what he is. He's just a young prophet um, and currently learning and growing and working under Elisha, just as Elisha worked under Elijah as he grew. But he has sent this guy to into the into the nest <laughs> and to stir up the bees. I liken it to tossing a grenade uh, and then running away. I have a friend who tells a story about how he was a he was special ops um, during the invasion of Panama and uh, many years ago. And as they were invading his Noriega, the, the president of Panama, as they were in, invading his palace, um, one of the guys on his team threw a grenade up the steps. Um, it didn't make it quite to the top and it bounced back down and panic <laughs> ensued and everyone 
ran. And that's kind of the picture I see here today. He's asked this young prophet to go in and toss a grenade in the middle of commanders and generals. Now, Jehu, the person that he's going to talk to, we, we learn a little bit about him here. We learn that he's the son of Jehoshaphat and the son of Nimshi. Uh, the names there tell us a little something about what Jehu will be called to do. Nimshi means the one who rescues those in danger. And Jehoshaphat means God has judged. The names of his ancestors tell us that Jehu's job in many ways, will be fulfilling God's judgment in Ahab's, on Ahab's family and rescuing his people from the worship of Baal. This is something that clearly God has had in the works from the very beginning, which is important for us to understand. He sees way beyond what we see in the present. I'm sure Jehu wasn't thinking, hey, my dad's named this, my grandpa's named that. Oh my goodness, this must be... He wasn't thinking that, but God was. At this point, Jehu is one of Jehoram's generals. You know, that king that's already in place that he's going to have to overthrow. He's one of his generals, and he's sitting probably literally at a campfire or, or in uh, the, the common space, a tent probably, with the other generals in Jehoram's army. They've been fighting a war against the Syrians, and Jehoram himself, the king, is injured and has left the battlefield and gone back to the city of Jezreel to heal. Also, Jehoram's nephew, who was in this fight with them, King Ahaziah of Judah, the king of Judah, even as they're two different nations, here they are working together to fight against a common enemy, but he too has been injured and is back at Jezreel. No wonder <laughs> Elisha warned his messenger to get it done and get out because this grenade <laughs> could quickly come bouncing back down the stairs. You know Jehu and the, the other generals have been spending a lot of time and energy leading their troops and encouraging their troops probably to follow the king as, as kind of the figurehead of, of what God wants to do and what God wants to achieve. Now, we all know it's under a false pretense. We all know that it's really in service of Baal, but, but Jehu has been supporting him. Let's see what happens next. So picking up in verse four of chapter nine of second Kings, it says this. So the young prophet went to Ramoth Gilead where he arrived. When he arrived, the army commanders were sitting there. And so he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu asked for which one of us he And he answered for you, commander. So Jehu got up and went into the house. The young prophet poured the oil on his head and said, This is what the Lord God says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. Can you imagine the quandary here? As I said before, Jehu serves Jehoram at this point. What he's telling Jehu to do is commit treason is to turn on him. And he's sitting again in this room with a, a pile of generals and all the troops all around them. This could go very badly, especially if they don't, if they don't buy in to his anointing, if they don't believe it for some reason. And remember, they took him and he took him into a separate room. The young prophet took him into a separate room. None of them were able to see this. This is risky business. And how about the, the timing, right? They're in the middle of a war. <laughs> the king is injured. And frankly, let's be clear, this anointing, this call on his life could likely get him 
and probably his family too, killed. This is a risk to be taken. But the young prophet isn't done yet, as though that wasn't enough. And what he tells Jehu next to do would put shivers up my spine if I were him. He says this, let's pick up in verse 7. It says, you are to strike down the house of your master Ahab so that I may avenge the bloodshed at the hand of Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and all the servants of the Lord. The whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will wipe out all Ahab's males, both slave and free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. There he is again, poor guy. (laughs) And like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. The dogs will eat Jezebel in the plot of land at Jezreel. No one will bury her. And then the young prophet opened the door and escaped. He dropped the grenade and he ran, just as he had been instructed. And as I think I've alluded to before, I don't blame him. Probably a good idea. Jehu's just been asked, just been given a twofold divine commission. And I wonder if he had reservations about it. I know... If you asked me to kill the king and his and all of the, the male heirs and all the male members of his family, both slave and free, that would be a big ask. But he's been anointed to do that. He's been commissioned and anointed to annihilate the apostate house of Ahab, the people who had turned and pulled the people of God away from him, who had built temples of Baal and poles for Asherah, that's another god, um, and done anything but follow God. So that, that first commission is this, to annihilate the apostate house of Ahab. He's also been given the commission to avenge the blood of God's people who had been martyred for their faithfulness. We know that he pursued Elijah repeatedly, and Elijah was delivered from that martyrdom. He was carried up in a chariot, right? But most of the other prophets were not so lucky. In fact, in 1 Kings 19, it says pretty clearly that Jezebel made it a habit of slaughtering all of the Lord's prophets that she could get her hands on. Um, There was a, a young man that worked in Ahab's home who was actually able to save about 150 prophets and hide them in caves. But all the rest were killed. Anyone who spoke the name of the Lord was killed, and that was ordered by Jezebel and condoned by King Ahab. The Lord had come to Elijah years earlier in a whisper after first sending a great wind and an earthquake and a fire. You can also read about that in 1 Kings 19 and said, this is what's going to happen. These plans that we're seeing happen right now were given years earlier, and this is exactly what God said would happen. Names and all, this is what's going to happen. There's some key points here that I think we need to understand. Um, God's timing is his timing alone. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 22 calls us, it, it says, don't say, I will avenge this evil. That means me. Don't say, I will avenge this evil that's before me. Wait on the Lord and he will rescue you. Elijah, this prophet of God, this man who walked so close to God that he avoided actually dying. He was taken straight to heaven, body and all. Him and Enoch, 
right? Those are the two in all of the Bible that received that blessing. Even Jesus had to die on a cross and his body be buried first before he could ascend to heaven. But Elijah did not get to see this come to fruition. You know he wanted it more than anything. There's a scene right after Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. Obviously, God did the defeating. But as he defeats him, we find Elijah next tired, languished, in pain, thinking he's the only one left and wondering whether or not anything he's doing here is futile because, or is valuable because it's not happening at the rate he expects it to happen. And he's kind of... He's, well, profoundly disheartened by that. And I think we almost all are. When things are not going the way we think they should or the world is not straightening up the way it should and people are not treating one another with love and if we are fighting wars and if there is screaming and yelling and antagonism, we're all thinking to ourselves, I pray for this. Can this ever be fixed? Will this ever be fixed in my lifetime? And the answer is, I don't know. God has promised he will fix it. But the timing is his. And that justice, whenever that justice comes or that vengeance comes or, or that love comes, whenever God shows up, will be on his, at his time. And it will be at the appointed time, the right time. And as Jesus tells his disciples in the book of Acts, it's not for us to worry about that. Our job is to just trust that his timing is the timing it should be. This, this waiting that God is doing by going out generations before exacting immediate revenge, um, it demonstrates the patience and willingness of God to relent, to not convict them and not judge them in such a way and not be vengeful. If they repent, that repentance that we should be thankful for, frankly, that's enough for God even if it's not enough for us. And sometimes we're too patient, impatient to wait. God sees the bigger picture. Again, he knew all this was coming before it did. He's willing to wait and he calls us to do the same. There's a reason why he says that vengeance is his because he can see what vengeance is really needed, what justice really is when maybe we're blind to it. The second key point is that his methods are his and his alone. He's going to ask, first he asked the young prophet to do something difficult. Um, it has been said that uh, God doesn't always call the qualified, but he all, always qualifies the willing, or he always brings them forth. But I, I think, or prepares them in route. I don't know that that's true. I think Sometimes his call is all the qualifications we need. We have to trust that he's made us able and move forward, assuming that he will make it work. That, that kind of method is not something we are comfortable with. We'd like to know what we're doing before we do it, right? Jehu, I'm sure, doesn't know what he's completely getting into here, what's being asked of him. The young prophet, absolutely confident, he has no idea what he's getting into. He just knows that he's been ordered by his master, just as we are ordered by God, to do something. 
You know, as Christians, we're ordered to share the gospel. That's that's a that's a requirement. That's not a uh, I might do it sometimes, or I'll think about it, or if it's convenient, or maybe after I learn more things. It's a requirement, um, and it's not negotiable. Really, you can't negotiate the terms of our agreement with Jesus. Um, all we need to be do, willing to do is trust that He has prepared us, and that Him His call is enough of a qualification. Loyalties here are also, we've alluded to them, are going to be tested. Jehu's got to commit treason to make this work. And he's really putting into practice the, the test that Jesus outlines in Matthew chapter 16. He says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money in this case. Um, as Jesus is speaking, it's a question of choosing which your master is, God and money. For Jehu, it's Jehoram, the lineage of Ahab, the kingdom, or God. What is it for you and I? Right? Where are the places in our lives where our, our following of God butts up against maybe what we want to do? Or where it butts up against things that make us more comfortable and feel safer or more secure? Where does the God's will butt up against my life? And where are those places where he's going to ask us to choose who our master is? Maybe our master is a political party. Maybe our master is um, our fear. Maybe our master is ourselves doing what we want to do no matter what. The truth is you can't serve both yourself and God at the same time. If you serve God, he will care for you, but you can't serve you and expect God to be happy with it. Jehu's got to make that choice, and frankly, so do all of us. So, and I think most importantly, finally, what we can learn from this key point is that the Lord is a keeper of his promises. Sometimes we don't see them again happen immediately, and we think to ourselves, is this ever going to happen? Is this ever going to work out? Am I ever going to be healed? Yes, but you just may be healed in the way that God determines. And that healing, which is ironic for us, for humans, may come with death. We know that as followers of Christ, that despite all the odds, God sent the Messiah, right? He came as promised. Jesus came as promised after they were pining for him for hundreds of years. And we know as we read the Bible in the book of Revelation that the day of the Lord will come and it will be a little bit challenging too for those who don't know him. But for those who do, it's the stuff dreams are made of, right? It is eternity with God. As Christians in particular, we have to believe that the Lord is a keeper of his promises. That stands at the very core of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Author Isaac Watts said, I believe the promises of God enough to venture into eternity on them. And that is the kind of faith that is required for us to navigate this life. It's the kind of faith that Elijah and Elisha lived on. It's the kind of faith that this young prophet is operating with and the kind of faith that Jehu must have in order to move forward. So when Jehu does move forward with what God has promised, what happens next? Let's go back to the text. It's 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 11 through 
13. When Jehu came out to his master's servants, they asked, is everything all right? Why did this crazy person come to you? And then he said to them, you know the sort and their ranting. But they replied, that's a lie. Tell us. So Jehu said, well, he talked to me about this and that and said, this is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. He, he comes out of the room and says, well, you know, he just talked to me about this and that, just some stuff. He anointed me king. <laughs> right? That is not the kind of thing that you should kind of eh, gloss over. That's kind of just a thing. And yet, I think sometimes we do treat God's call on our lives as just a thing. One of many things that we place on our priority list. We think of, of reading his word, following him, being obedient to learning of who he is. We think of that as a thing on the list. We think of sometimes gathering together, whether it be online or physically together, gathering together and, and encouraging one another and, and hearing songs and singing songs and praises to God and listening to his word. We start to think of it as, Eh, it's a thing. It's one of many things, this or that, that are on our list. But one thing that is consistent about the people of God who are successful in doing his will, and when I say successful, I don't mean perfect because ain't none of us are. But those of us who can move towards God, and we've all got battles. I have issues where I sometimes don't live this out the way I should is that they don't treat the call God has on their lives as simply this or that. They treat it as the very meaning of their existence, the purpose for life given on this earth. For the air we breathe and the beat of our hearts, we are his people. We are his people working for him, pursuing him, and helping others come to know him. That's not a ho-hum this or that job. That is a humble honor that will challenge us that will push us, but is worth every bit of what we put into it. If you have found yourself in your faith, finding it to treat it as something that's this or that, I would encourage you to turn back towards God and say, look, I've, I've treated my relationship with you as something that is kind of, eh, it's this or that. When the truth is you have come in and you have given us an opportunity to be part of the king's family. No, you haven't made us king. Jesus is king. But you have made us part of the king's family. You have adopted us as your sons and your daughters. And you have agreed to carry us and keep us safe all the way into eternity and allow us to live with you for any and all time. Can I just tell you that is not a this or that kind of thing. That is life. That is life eternal. That is the vision that he has placed before us, the promise he plans to keep, and the thing that we strive for when this is all said and done. I encourage you, to rekindle that fire, to come to know him. And you can do that. It's pretty simple. You just have to choose to. You have to choose to follow him. Forget what was. Move into what he has planned for you. It's not a this or that moment. 
it's all that in a bag of chips. And you might just find out like Jehu did, that there are others on your side that you had no idea were with you, that they will celebrate with you. In fact, those of us in this church, we will celebrate with you just as the generals did with him. They immediately said, yes, we recognize God working in you and we are with you 100%. We are too. Our Lord loves you and he loves us all and he desires us to follow him. Join us, please, and you'll find out just how amazing he is. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.